There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're very excited today because we've got someone awesome back. Alex, oh, got- we have. Do you know what? We've cracked open the rum in celebration for two reasons. One, because Nick <laughs> Ramos is back and he's awesome. And two, because we're continuing with him on the history of Cuba. Um, so we had to have rum because otherwise it's just wrong. So we left off with the what was the Cuban War of Independence, but then turned into the Spanish-American War. And this is the birth of the American Empire, where America starts asserting itself and, you know, it's the 20th century is sometimes called the, the American century. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that it would start in Cuba. So here, the Americans come, they beat the Spanish back, they essentially more or less either finish off the Spanish or win the war, depending on who you ask, for the Cubans. And then they fall out of love with the Cubans when they figure out that the rebels are populist, a little bit populist, and black. And they're not men of letters. You know, this is not lawyers of renown a lot of the time a lot of a lot of you know lower class middle class people that uh achieve some sort of mobility through the military struggle so the first man who gets there and becomes uh the 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 proconsul but but realistically you know it's it's another form of captain general is a man named leonard wood who is a harvard educated doctor uh and leonard wood would be the man who would transition cuba into democracy. That was his official mission. Given by Theodore Roosevelt, who by this point is president of the United States, his official mission is establish a democracy or, or, you know, just give the Cubans, get them in shape and then get out. So he begins a a sort of uh, an imperial uh, satrapy of the, of the Cuban Isle. And he makes a lot of reforms. Significantly, he makes a lot of reforms when it comes to road building uh, when it comes to sanitation, because yellow fever is the peril of Cuba forever. If you were a white person and you were traveling to, to the Caribbean before the 20th century, you were essentially playing Russian roulette because a single mosquito bite from the 80s mosquito could kill you. In fact, it was so hard to fight in Cuba, specifically for European armies, and even the United States in their very little time when they beat Spain back in was practically two months, Uh, even they started to suffer significant attrition from yellow fever, which is sometimes called the Black Death. Mm. You you throw up, you get high fever, and then you're dead in a week, or in a couple days even. So he makes significant, uh, he, through the help of a Cuban doctor, uh, who is a very prominent man, and I think the reason why I know this story is because my dad is an epidemiologist. Uh, Through the help of a Cuban doctor, he's able to isolate and decide that the aedes mosquito is how this is spread, and it's not through just germs or bacteria. So they begin a a program of decontamination, and they practically wipe out yellow fever from Havana. And I remember even while I was growing up, there were still PSAs. You know, you're watching Tom and Jerry, and it's interrupted by a PSA about don't leave, you know, car uh, tires upturned because they collect water and it grows to, and, and mosquitoes can grow there. 
So this is a very big problem to this day in Cuba. And he essentially puts in the plan in motion to get rid of that and make it a more hospitable place. But his main mission there is, okay, we're going to give Cubans their first constitution and their first democratically elected government. So this guy goes around the island campaigning for his preferred candidate. His preferred candidate is a man named Tomas Estrada Palma. Uh, He is the second in command of the Cuban Revolutionary Party, which was stationed in New York. So he never goes to Cuba to fight. He's, He's a lawyer. He's... In the, he, he's a tutor in the United States, and he's very close to the United States. In fact, he, uh, he was in favor of annexation of Cuba at certain points. And so this man is the United States' preferred candidate. But he's also, you know, a revolutionary hero, a very important man. He has clout with Cubans, too. Generally considered to be a good and honest man at the time of his election. But there are certain things the United States wishes to impose on Cuba before it lets it go on its own. And specifically, what begins the period that we know as the neo-colony, which is from U.S. occupation to 1933, is something called the Platt Amendment. And that word, to Cubans at the time, nationalists to Cubans, sent shivers down their spine. The Platt Amendment was a series of, you know, of mandates that the United States forced the Cubans basically at, at the at gunship point to include in their constitution. Now, a few of them are, you know, self-explanatory, don't in- incur uh, crazy debts, uh, don't uh, let European powers, you know, take control of your affairs, uh, don't make the island too dirty, et cetera, et cetera. It gave the United States the right to intervene militarily in Cuban affairs, whenever the United States deemed the island to be in a state of anarchy, or they deemed life or property to be in danger. And this is very important, because that particular plank of the Platt Amendment is going to decide the rest of Cuban history until the 30s. Because basically, it sets this up. So the United States now has the right to intervene militarily in Cuba. Okay, it's not a right that it really wants to exercise, to be honest. Now, at times they're going to threaten, but having to invade Cuba, you know, every four or five years when there's an election, it's really a huge pain in the ass for the United States. Presidents get get headaches from thinking about this. But what it creates is a very nasty incentive for opposition parties. Because if an opposition party loses an election, it's going to create a state of anarchy which necessitates U.S. intervention. So in the next 30 years, at multiple points, all sort of opposition parties are going to complain to the United States, we lost an election, they cheated, intervene. And then they're going to raise a stink, they're going to take to the streets, there's going to be violence, regular revolts, it's going to be a very unstable place. And the Platt Amendment, which was meant to be, you know, sort of this high-minded Wilsonian idea of, you know, we're going to, very patronizing, we're going to take care of you lesser nations that aren't quite sure of democracy yet, sort of turns the democracy of the island into a joke, or it helps turn it. Now, here's where I deviate a little bit with a lot of uh, some Cuban historians who place the blame squarely in the United States. Sure, the United States did not help, but the Cubans did themselves no favor. So in the first election, the first president of Cuba is elected unanimously. 
because the person that is running against him basically uh, drops out. And uh, Maximo Gomez, the, the hero of 1895, the big general, he refuses to run. He says that um, he's always, he does, he, he, he's not originally from Cuba. He's from the Dominican Republic. So he doesn't want to run. He doesn't want to impose in Cuban politics. He thinks he's a military man and military men are for military times and civilian men are for civilian times. So uh, the first president of the Cuban Republic, Tomas Estrada Palma, a 60-something-year-old man, considered honest, lawyer, very close to the United States, is elected without an opponent because he thinks the election is going to be unfair. He thinks that the, the electoral boards, which are actually supposed to count the votes, have uh, Tomas Estrada supporters on it, that the United States is cheating. And the United States basically, in a way, was cheating because the current consul was walk, running around the island saying, we need the better classes to rule here. If the better classes, if you don't do the right thing, if you don't pick the better classes, we are going to invade you. We're going to occupy you. Now, that might not have been true, but the threat was important. And so the island is handed back to the Cubans in a first election, which doesn't turn out to be an election at all because one candidate wins. This is like a farce. Yeah, it's, 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 it, it couldn't, it didn't necessarily have to be a farce. It could have been a real election. It's just the opposition is very uncomfortable with uh, the idea of the United States coming in. And the fact that Tomas Estrada Palma is, by all accounts, well-liked by everybody. Like, this yeah. is not a guy the United States handpicked. This is a guy who's been part of the revolutionary cause of Cuba all the way there. So the first president is all right. Uh, in the sense, at the time of his election, he did have support of both the military classes and the middle class and, you know, men of actual, men with wealth. Mm. The first president of the Cuban Republic, by all accounts, should have been that man I mentioned in the last episode, Jose Marti. Yeah. But he died very quickly. He never got to fulfill whatever his ideas were as to what a Cuban Republic should be. So Tomas Estrada uh, Palma gets in. He's the first president of Cuba. Uh, he negotiates a treaty with the United States for uh, exporting sugar to them. That's going to be a very important thing because for the next 50 years, again, Cuba monoculture, it's going to be reliant on exporting sugar to the United States. Uh, and that's and when sugar goes up, it's going to be really good. Like in World War I, for example, which is uh, what you study. In World War I, sugar prices are going to skyrocket for Cuba. And uh, the, the time is going to be great. It's going to be called the Dance of Millions. It's all that after... tea on the Western Front. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, that's going to be called the Dance of Millions, where I'm from. And then after uh, that goes away and prices stabilize, Cuba's going to enter just a horrible depression because you can't pin everything to sugar prices. So the Cuban state starts out, and uh, I'm not going to go president by president. Yeah. But what you're but what you're going to see here is making a country is hard. Like just, just having a country is hard to begin with. Governing one is harder. The European nations, which seem to be and the American and some of the American nations, which seem to be, you know, nominally democratic and behaving rather okay, um, had hundreds of years to actually stabilize their government sometimes and had to fight bloody wars in the 20th century. And even then, in like the 90s, the Eastern European republics came to, came to being. So, and some of them are shit shows. So actually having a country is very difficult in running one. And this is going to be the same for Cuba. Because the first 30 years of the republic are going to be defined by something really ugly. The fact that foreign business 
controls so much of Cuba. So railroads, plantations, sugar mills, merchants, trading, all of that is mostly foreign or ex-Spanish. And they prefer, and at, at the same time, Cuba is importing just a massive amount of Spanish uh, of Spanish labor. So there's like a huge growth in, in immigration and there's foreign industry, which means that the, the, there's a lot of competition for jobs. There are not enough jobs for all Cubans and the jobs are not particularly well paid because a lot of those jobs are going to foreigners. And a lot of the profit from, let's say, sugar farming or trading or, or mining is, is going, because there is copper in Cuba, is going to foreigners. Yeah. It's not in the island. So you have a pie. And the pie is pretty small because a lot of that pie is going to foreigners. The only thing in these first 30 years of the Republic, which are wholly Cuban-owned, is the government. And that's where you start getting a problem because the government starts being treated as a business. So you have rival political parties and the rival political parties are not particularly ideological. These are parties that are really just alliances of convenience between strong men and their patrons and and, and the people they patronize. Mm. So kind of like, kind of like in uh, Roman political parties where you woke up every day and you walk to, uh, you know, your patron's house, et cetera, et cetera. So they're not particularly ideological. And so they compete heavily for the government because if they get into government, then for example, your postmaster, that's going to be a guy who voted for the current president. And, uh, you know, your, your chief of police, that's going to be a guy closely affiliated to, to the political party in charge because that's, that was the only way to make money. The most, the easiest way to make money is to get in good with a political party and then begin taking bribes Starting, it breeds uh, corruption, doesn't it? It breeds corruption. And this is really the story of a lot of South American and African states. The fact that the government becomes a business. And therefore, if, you, if your party loses, you're going to be purged, right? This is the entire idea of the spoil system, which is that, that public servants should not be decided based on their political ties. You know, do you really care if the person bringing you your mail is... Uh, is Tory or Labour or, mm. or Republican or Democrat. But in Cuba, you do. You do care if they're like liberal or conservative or the other bunch of parties that sprung up around this time because they're tied to a regime and that's where they get their money from. Yeah. So election times turn really bitter and caustic because if your party loses, you're going to be out of power. You're, you're done. You won't be able to support your family. You're going to be perched the next day and some other guy's going to collect your paycheck. So every four years, you would see electoral violence, you would see assassinations, you would see vote suppression, you would see, you know, the worst things that come with uh, failing democracy. And every four years, the losing party and the winning party, too, would be like, hey, the United States, remember the Platt Amendment? Please intervene. And so four years after the United States first establishes the Cuban Republic, um, it has to intervene again <laughs> and put another proconsul in charge and organize new elections because the first uh, the party that first took control cheats and suppresses and the other party um, starts an insurrection. And this leads to this terrible cycle of electoral violence every four years with deeply corrupt presidents who are making a ton of money off sugar 
and uh, are taking foreign loans, but pocketing them, pocketing like a bunch of the foreign loans. Is it um, unsurprising, therefore, when after 1933, you get the rise of a dictator? Absolutely not. Because so then, before, sorry, yeah, then you've got Fulgencio Batista, haven't you? Yes. So before you get to Fulgencio Batista, there's one important dictator, which is Machado. Uh-huh. He goes from 1925 to 1933. And he's essentially, so all the presidents from this time period are men that fought in 1895. And he's the, the one that finally makes all the bad traits of the 1895 presidents just unite. He co-ops all the political parties. He takes huge bribes, starts a bunch of public projects, pays everybody off, unites the parties to only support him and bans all political parties. And he starts becoming super violent. Uh, The level of violence I'm talking about is college students that didn't like him, university students that were communistic or socialistic. You got a couple of them. He weighed them down and threw them off a castle to be eaten by sharks. Wow. So that's the type of violence we're talking about. Like this, this is a guy, this is a guy who shot a newspaper editor probably in like his first two months of administration because his, the newspaper editor insinuated that his daughter might be a lesbian. And this guy brings massive violence to Cuba. Practically all sects of the population rebel against him. University, the middle class, they all want to throw him out. Unsurprisingly. And so the United States has to get involved again in 1933. And it's they, becoming you know, a ball ache, isn't it, for the US? Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. It's it's a hundred percent self fulfilling. Like, please take care of your own affairs, but okay. So we got to get involved every four years. Um, and so in 1933, he's finally coming down. Uh, there's mass terrorism in Cuba. There's terrorism to the point where, for example, um, there's a group called ABC, which just focuses on bombings and whatnot, and they they kill the president of the Senate. Uh, they kill him mafia style, like gun him down from a car. And so there's going to be a. They expect they they don't kill him just to kill him. They do that so there's going to be a huge funeral at the uh, in in Havana, and they can in the ahead of time they rig bombs in the Havana cemetery to kill the entire administration. But the funeral never happens, and the bombs are later discovered by like a gardener or something. So that's the type of political violence we're talking about. It's just like a low level civil I'm just war. Picturing the, the look on the gardener's face <laughs> when he goes to plant some flowers and it's like, what the fuck. <laughs> Exactly. It's just ridiculous. Banana Republic, uh, Banana Republic type stuff. Um, you find all these, all these stories that are, um, that are just horribly violent and, and have a particular like Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, taste to them. Um, so he eventually comes down, but he comes down when the U.S. intervenes and decides to do something called a mediation. Right. And the United States brings sort of not a particularly puppet, but like a, an empty suit president. And this guy lasts 21 days. Because in 21 <laughs> days, there's this guy called Fulgencio Batista that comes out of nowhere. So Fulgencio Batista is really weird in all history, not just Cuban history. Because the man is enlisted. He's a sergeant. So he's not a, a, a man. Of, he, he was a poor planter kid coming from nothing, from the Orient, mixed race, Chinese, Indian, black, white. He was always coy about it, but it was clear. The higher classes at the beginning didn't like him. Mm. 
And he essentially, so everyone's conspiring against the government that the United States just put in after the mediation where they got rid of this dictator. But nobody expected this nobody sergeant to, to come out of nowhere and essentially organize a coup around very limited ideas, which is the fact that enlisted men, you know, privates and sergeants, the people who actually do things in an army, um, were being treated bad because the Cuban army still had a lot of vestiges from the, uh, the old colonial system. So there were a lot of snobbish practices. Like uh, if your superior officer came into a club you were at, you had to leave. So you were knocking back some drinks with, with a lady and then your superior officer came, you had to tuck your tail and leave. They were, they were bad, uh, badly paid. And they were really scared that they were about to be scapegoated for the violence that was done under Machado because Machado mobilized the army to kill people, to essentially be his own private police force. And, you know, that's the, the, there's the German defense at, you know, Nuremberg, orders are just orders. Yeah. And the sergeants in private, we were following orders. And the, I forget how you say it in German, ah, whatever. Um, and uh, the privates are scared they're going to be scapegoated for following the orders of their superiors. And they also don't like them. And they also think they treat them bad. So this nobody 33-year-old stenographer, sergeant, mixed race, who comes from like poor cane-cutting parents who has, has been homeless before. He was homeless when he was like 17, just working as a vagabond, sleeping at train stations, covering himself with a box from the cold. He organizes a rebellion in the biggest military camp in Havana and within 24 hours overthrows the government just by making sure that every sergeant and private he could get his hands on put the officers in jail. And so he overthrows the, the government in, in 24 hours, but then he looks around and he realizes holy shit, I'm going to be killed for this. I, I can't, because originally it's not, he's not overthrowing the government. He's doing an army mutiny, which is different. It's getting rid of the officers and we want better terms. But he realizes they're not going to forgive the mutiny. And the government right now isn't going to sanction it because it's a middle-class government with U.S. leanings. And I'm just, you know, a mixed-race guy. So for my mutiny to survive and for me to improve my life and the, li- and the lives of my men, I'm going to need to overthrow the government. And within 24 hours, every politically minded person starts showing up at this camp in Havana, being like, yo, what's going on? Who, who, who just overthrew the government? And they find a bunch of soldiers with no political platform who some people described as a labor union. It's almost like a labor strike. And the people that show up in force are radical students. And so in 1933, there begins a 20-day government transitions into something called a pentarchy, five people, which lasts for five days. And that's overthrown instantly, internally, by a a student government. And this is Cuba's first revolutionary government because the students really are not friendly to U.S. interests or to U.S. capital, and they're very much nationalists. And this is called the 100 days government. So, for example, the things they do is they give women the right to vote. Uh, They pass... Uh, legislation to make sure that 50% of workers of any corporation had to be Cuban or 50% of the, uh, of the, the earnings of the corporation must go to Cubans. And so this is the first revolutionary government. Now we're in 1933. And progressive stuff going on there. Yeah. I mean, these guys are are a bunch of university students uh, who come to power and the guy they decide to put in, in charge is one of their own professors. Yeah. He's a, He's a doctor named Dr. Ramon San, uh, Grau San Martin, um, 
who at both times is both their, he's both their defender and he's hostage by them. Because if you've ever been part of any university club, uh, working with students is really hard. Yeah. They, don't, it, they don't get along with people. Like the students are very high handed. So the United States, there's this very progressive government, like you just described it. Um, and the United States freaks out about this. Because the ambassador that, that brokered the, the last government that was, you know, U.S. friendly um, considers as a personal failing. And he's seeing a red menace in these students. And he just refuses to accept this government. And meanwhile, every other political party refuses to accept this government. Um, and so this government, although it might have decreed a lot of progressive things, it's just unstable. It can't. <laughs> It can't project power. It's not recognized by the United States. It's facing insurrections every other day. No political party would come to the table. It, it's not collecting taxes. It's literally alive only because people hate Batista, only because Batista's in control and the, the upper classes haven't warmed up to him since he's a nobody upstart. But as Batista beats back his enemies, for example, there's a big battle against a bunch of officers who he threw in jail in, in the Hotel Nacional of Cuba, which is a very important hotel. It's just like open warfare in the Havana streets, shelling them from, from a boat, um, a siege, really. Eventually, Batista becomes so powerful in 100 days, and the United States war warms up to him and the opposition warms up to him, that he can just get rid of the student government and then begin just a long period of puppet governments. And so the rest of the 30s is Batista just puppeting people going around crushing insurrection and insurrection and insurrection. Because once you let the revolutionary genie out of the bottle in 1933, it's very hard to put back in. These are guys who were fighting a dictator for many years, committing terrorist attacks. And so it's very hard to say, hey, everybody, go back to normal. Yeah, so for I, mean, I guess the second that they see yeah. something they don't like, that's how they react. Yeah. Violence is entrenched. So eventually Batista spends the rest of the 30s beating people up essentially. And then he turns, he turns progressive at the end. He has a final coronation where he helps draft a new constitution, then allies with the communists in 1940, people he, had, he helped suppress um, and, uh, and rules as a sort of a, a progressive uh, social democrat, instituting like a bunch of pro-labor reforms and, and giving labor a big seat at the table. So in the 1940s, Batista is democratically elected as a president and this, this is the man who Castro would eventually overthrow and was associated with, like, all the nasty things of Cuba in the 50s. Mafias, killings, you know, torture. He rules for four years as a social democrat, popularly elected, and then he steps down. Um, and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, this is it, isn't it? We've got to the point in your list um, of important moments in Cuban history. We've got to Fidel, haven't we? At this time, Fidel, we can start tracing him, yeah. Yeah. So um, when Batista steps down in, uh, in the 40s, uh, he did one term as president, and there's a big stigma in, in South America and Central America against re-election, because anyone who, who gets, is trying to get re-elected, it's instantly assumed they're trying to become a dictator or become corrupt. Right. So Batista steps down as, as a good Democrat. Um, and then begins a very ugly period in Cuban history called gangsterism, where essentially you get back-to-back presidents uh, who have to deal with or encourage, who are both corrupt. They both steal a lot of money. And so did Batista. Every Cuban president is corrupt. Um, But they have to deal with armed military students and political agitators in the streets fighting gang battles. And this goes to the top level of government. So, for example, the leader of one of the presidents uh, fights a duel with the opposition leader with sabers in the 1940s. It's reported in the New York Times. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, one one of the one of the, like the most magnetizing opposition leaders who eventually who inspires Fidel to start off with fights in eight duels and then shoots himself uh, while giving a radio address to wake up the nation that everything is is just awful. He meant to shoot himself as a dramatic flair, I think, but he ends up killing himself. No way. <laughs> So, Who is yeah. this guy? This, this guy is called Eddie Chibas. Uh, Do you know what? We should have had him down the pub the other day. We did the mo- the uh, we did the most hilarious moment in history, and there was some comedy <laughs> deaths in there. I feel like he should have been there. Yeah, <laughs> he could have won. When you accidentally yeah. kill yourself Dole. trying to make a point. Yeah, <laughs> what did he try yeah. to shoot himself in the foot or something and get it wrong? Nah, I, I don't know. I don't know why he didn't. I think he shot himself in the head. Uh, well, and, and, he, and he was supposed to do it on the radio, but he, he did it at the end of his radio broadcast and the radio cut off so people didn't even hear the gunshot. And this super competent, like great magnetizing speaker, just complete fuck up at the end of his life. <laughs> oh my God, please tell so, me it mentions it on his headstone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, at this time of gangsterism, where you have university students killing each other in the streets and like presidents fighting duels against opposition leaders and massive corruption, um, Fidel Castro is in university. Now, Fidel Castro is born in the Orient. He's born to an ex-Spanish uh, soldier who came to Cuba and by, you know, by hook or by crook, he, working for the United uh, Fruit Company, he managed to make himself an estate. This is Angel Castro, the, na- the father of Fidel Castro. So he makes himself an estate. Mm-hmm. So a big sugar plantation. Not, not sugar, but they grow sugar and they grow other, other things too. In a very remote part. Not very remote, but decently remote part of the Orient. And uh, Castro is born to his second wife, 
a common law wife because he doesn't marry her until much later. Um, and he's not quite a bastard, but you know, this guy has a wife already and he has kids with her. He doesn't divorce her. He just takes up another mistress and then starts having a bunch of kids with her. And he's born as the second oldest of several kids um, in a common law marriage to this very tough, very entrepreneurial, hardworking Spanish macho guy. Like there's the prototypical, you know, uh, Galician guy. Yeah. Uh, and he grows up in, you know, this rough and tumble park talking to, to workers because an hacienda is very big. There are a bunch of workers. His dad employed around some, something like 300 to 500 people. And so he grows up uh, privileged, yes, because his father does take care of him, but also grows up around very common people. So he's always very comfortable around, you know, hard scrabble workers and whatnot. And eventually his father pays for a, a Jesuit ed- education, um, similar to the guy that he goes to the same uh, school of the guy that ended up shooting himself on, on radio. Um, <laughs> and uh, Castro from the very beginning is a very athletic kid. He, he excels at sports. Um, he's given like a, he's named like the best sportsman on the island, I think, on one year. Um, he's all right at school, but he's, he's always very hard headed and he has a prodigious memory. And when he gets to university, he decides to study law and doesn't go to class ever. And this is pretty normal too back then, because all he does is he just goes around and engages in gangsterism politics, armed, armed political parties, kind of like when, when the Roman Republic is falling from the, the Sulla years to the triumvirate with Caesar Pompey, um, where, where there are armed political gangs roaming the streets that are partisans, university students are filling that role. So Castro is affiliated possibly with several murders when he's in university. Um, and he's sort of viewed as like a wild man at times. And uh, he very much believes. So he, he's, he tries to ingratiate himself with, uh, with a few political parties, but, you know, none entirely take him. And so then he's not a communist at this time. Right. Um, at all. He, he's more of a nationalist with certain political, like nationalistic political leanings and social democratic political leanings and whatnot. And then while he's in university and this massive violence is going on, Batista do, comes back and does a, a, a coup. And he, right before an election is supposed to happen, under the pretenses that the president was going to do his own coup, does a coup against the president, throws him out of power, and essentially starts taking control of Cuba. He says he's going to bring elections back, but he's not trying particularly hard. And when he eventually does bring elections back, they're a sham. And Batista, by this point, is very changed. He's no longer the social democrat he was. And he no longer rules with the Communist Party because this is the Cold War now. Right. So he has to cozy up to the United States and he realizes there's a lot of money to be made. And Batista, at his core, is never a particularly ideological man. So he certainly has, you know, the upbringing to feel a certain way about the masses being poor himself. But right from the beginning, the man is an opportunist. He's willing to go with whatever will get, get him further ahead in life. And that's particularly telling because in 1933, right as he was starting, you know, his coup thing, mafiosos visit him and offer him $5 million a year and he accepts. Wow. So goes the story. This is the beginning of, you know, how the mafia gets involved with Cuba and starts casinos and Godfather 2, Meyer Lansky and whatnot. But yeah, that's, that's the environment where Fidel Castro grows up, just a 
first in, in the hard scrabble area, but to a wealthy father, and then supported by his father as he tries to make a political career as a wild man. And eventually he comes to, he just decides that, you know, the entire system is fucked. We, we can't put up with it anymore, much like the guy that shot himself on the radio, who was his political, uh, he aspired to be that guy, just a firebrand who talked shit about everything. Yeah. And so he, with a couple of uh, hundred people, decides to randomly one day just attack a barracks in the Orient. And he gets wiped. Like, with a hundred men, he attacks thousand men. He messes up. They kill most of the people, torture them terribly. And because he had political connections and was wealthy, he is sent to a prison. As opposed Um, to being ended. As as opposed to being tortured like the the rest of the people he dragged into his wild Mm. scheme. And in in the prison... um, before the prison, he has a trial. And, you know, much like demagogues throughout history, Hitler, you know, has his own day in the sun during his trial. He writes, uh, he writes a speech defending his actions. You know, Batista was a dictator. He had uh, ended an election. He had not brought back the Constitution. Because in 1940, there's a constitution that passes. It's one of the most progressive constitutions. It's kind of like the, the Weimar Republic Constitution. Mm-hmm. You know, it just... It makes a bunch of decrees that should be backed up later by legislation, but eventually don't. And he's trying, he says, I want to bring that constitution back. I want Cuban democracy, et cetera, et cetera. No mention of communism, no mention of that. And, you know, he gives his speech at his trial, which uh, eventually is released. And his famous line from the end of the speech is, uh, you know, convict me. I don't care. History will absolve me. And that becomes the famous Castro quote fact that he is unbending in the idea that he is a great man he remind he, he very much operates in that 19th century sense where it's you know like i'm gonna compare myself to julius caesar and pompey and and uh robespierre and uh and blanqui and whatnot so he's sent to jail and eventually he's released and he, he doesn't get killed because of his political connections and he's released under an amnesty uh and he realizes after he's released that things are calming down a bit and that no one's going to take him because what he believes in is direct insurrection against the government. From the very early on, there's a violent strain to Castro where he doesn't necessarily believe that the ballot is the best way to fix everything, the ballot or the bullet, to quote, uh, to quote uh, Malcolm X. Uh, he believes in the bullet. So he leaves to Mexico with like a few people, starts collecting money and comes back with 84 men to topple Fulgencio Batista. It's a not guy good, is it? It's insane. He comes back on a shitty boat with 84 men. So this is where he meets. He meets Ernesto Che Guevara. Um, and, you know, for listeners that don't know, the name Che is like an Argentine tick that means man, you know, like, or like dude. So when he was around Cubans, he was like, oh yeah, Che, you know, how you doing, Che? What's up, Che? Um, he would say that. And, and so the, the Cubans just nicknamed him Che which is the Argentine, uh, you know, the, what, what they say. So um, there he meets Che. Um, he meets other people who I can't mention right now because of time constraints. Um, <laughs> and uh, with, 80, with 80-something guys, he comes back on a shitty boat and tries to invade Cuba. And like 60 of the guys are killed right away by Fulgencio Batista. <laughs> and so he's, he's, he's with 20 dudes in the Orient, just parading around, not doing much, dodging patrols, trying to talk to the countryside while some of the people, some of the movements, some that agree with him, some that don't 
organized their own very important struggles against the Fulgencio Batista regime in the cities. And these are people who were, were not communists. Um, a lot of students who were anti-communists who f- try to assassinate Batista. And so all these movements coalesce. But the one guy who has, you know, a lot of screen time and like a huge personality who's actually raising troops is this guy, Fidel Castro, in, in the Orient. And, you know, there's this famous story of the New York Times coming to see him and having to be sneaked in and to give a, to, to give a sense for the New York Times that, that his, his army was a lot bigger than he was. He just had 10 men to like lapse, vanish in and out. <laughs> So, and it was so the, enough to fool the New York Times. Yeah, it was enough to fool the New York Times, who supported. And he was very clear. He was like, I am not a communist. He said it multiple times. There's recordings of him saying there's nothing communistic about this. We, we derive our, our ideas from Marti and the guy who shot himself at Ichiba's. We're constitutional. We want to bring back 1940s. And eventually, the Vilgencio Batista regime, facing opposition from just about everybody, starts getting iced out by the United States. They sold both sides' weapons. They sold Castro weapons and they sold Batista weapons, but they sold Batista more weapons, um, as the U.S. tends to do in so many conflicts. Mm-hmm. They stopped selling Batista weapons. They stopped supporting him. And eventually, just the mass, just the entirety of society turns against him. So he has to flee the island. And Castro can ride in, you know, on, on a victory parade to Cuba. And very quickly, though, he doesn't get along with the United States. The United States recognizes his government, but they're not going to put up with any social democracy or communist pandering. So, for example, Raul Castro, who was president of Cuba just a little bit ago and Fidel Castro's younger brother, has been a commi- committed communist for a while now. And Ernesto Che Guevara, one of the leaders of the army, committed communist, who has been trying to get Fidel to flip to communism for a while. Um, but Fidel himself is not a communist yet. He is a social democrat. He does have very... He does have social democratic leanings. And there is no love between the United States and Fidel Castro. There's a mutual distrust that kicks up when, when Fidel demands that uh, U.S. companies stationed in Cuba that handle oil do business with, Soviet, with the Soviet Union. I believe that they, they have to refine Soviet oil. I'm forgetting. But... The United States starts realizing that this guy sort of wants to be a Tito figure, just sort of a guy who's going to play both sides, like Tito in Yugoslavia. Yeah. And they don't and they don't take and they don't take kindly to that at all. And then Fidel just nationalizes all foreign companies, <laughs> and that's it. That's it for the United States. Yeah. I mean, Eisenhower wouldn't meet him face to face. He met with uh, met with Nixon, and the two instantly disliked each other. So either Fidel. So I think Fidel might be a good judge of character. Yeah, it's um, emphatic, isn't it? Yeah, the two instantly dislike each other. He finds Nixon terrible. And so he nationalizes all industry, all foreign industry, and passes like pretty stringent labor reform laws, that, um, not labor reform, land reform, that limit significantly the maximum amount of acres you can, you can own. And after that, it's done. Um, and then Cuban, the, the Cuban missile crisis, uh, Cuban missile crisis happens, which I'm sure everybody knows about. Yeah. We've covered that. Yeah. That's eventually, oh, you covered the Cuban missile crisis. That's awesome. Uh, not in great detail, but yeah, it's come up on the podcast thus far. Awesome. So when Fidel officially declares himself communist is after the Bay of Pigs. Okay. So that's 1960. Yeah. When the United States 
decides um, that. So when when Fidel takes over, as as he's associating himself with more and more communists, the people who previously supported him and uh, and fought uh, against Batista also, the ones that are not communists begin to ally against him, and they start to do their own insurrection, including a, a North American guy who was like one of the significant military leaders who rejected his U.S. citizenship to fight with Fidel, um, he rises up against Castro. And Castro just has him executed. He's personally there. Um, and then when the Bay of Pigs happens and Fidel beats back, back the Bay of Pigs, he outright declares that Cuba's communist and that the mission is communistic and tells the United States to, to go after themselves. And for the next, you know, until the Soviet Union falls, Cuba is closely allied yet, you know, a bit distant because Fidel does his own thing um, to the Soviet Union, receiving money from them. And living isn't great, but it's not awful either. You know, my parents remember uh, life under Soviet Union-affiliated Cuba with all the money the Soviet Union was giving a lot better than they did after the Soviet Union fell. And that, that's also true for a lot of Eastern Europeans when, you know, they, they got a massive kleptocracy and unstable governments after the, the quick transition of the Soviet Union to, you know, this robber baron capitalism that suddenly springed up in 24 hours. Yeah. So, so uh, what, yeah. Did, what did that mean for Cubans for the rest of the 20th century then under Castro? It means that Cubans have gotten to punch above their own weight for a long, long time. <laughs> uh, so when you, you look at uh, the Angolan Civil War and you look at some conflicts around the world... And you look at, you know, belligerence and how many tanks they had and whatnot. And you'll randomly find weird things like, why are there wars in Africa where one of the belligerents is like a thousand Cubans with 60 Cuban tanks? What are Cubans doing there? And the fact is that Cubans very much, Fidel Castro is a revolutionary through, in a way, through and through. Not as much as Ernesto Che Guevara. Eventually him and Ernesto Che Guevara disagree on the fact that Ernesto Che Guevara hates the Soviet Union. He really doesn't like it. And mm. Fidel plays more real politic with them. But he remains, he wants to export his ideas out to the world. And so for the, for the rest of the time, he's just going to be a thorn at the side of the United States. And his proximity to the United States and the fact that it's still one of the last communist nations means that, that it's, it's in the world's psyche it has had an outsized role. And Cuba, in a way, has always had an outsized role. From the time when it was the fulcrum of the Spanish Empire, but it was just a very bad colony, to the time when the American Empire first started in the 20th century there, to the time when it became a Soviet outpost in the 1960s, it's always had a role in world affairs much bigger than it has any right to. And uh, what it means for Cubans is that... um, I don't, that's, that's hard to say. I I think that's for future historians to decide. That's, that's where I'm scared to veer into. Yeah. (laughs) I cannot thank you enough for the two shows that you've done with us. I know how hard you've worked on them, um, but you have come across great. Your knowledge is so extensive. And the fact that you could talk to us about a sweep of history, um, that's so long, um, and give everybody, uh, a, like an idiot's guide to Cuban history, basically for, 80% 80% listenership in the UK who don't know anything about it has been absolutely fantastic. So thanks very much. Thank you very much. I'm sorry if I talked your ear off. Uh, I do have significant, <laughs> I do have significant UK, uh, UK uh, uh, listenership, viewership. Uh, uh, I don't know. 
there's a significant amount of people from the UK listen to the podcast. So uh, I'm, well I'm glad. Uh, I hope there's some overlap uh, and I hope they listen to this too. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Join us tomorrow when Tyler Wentzel will be with us to talk all about Canadians and the Spanish Civil War. We haven't done anything on the International Brigades yet, so we started with this. Really interesting, so don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so.